Okay, good evening, everybody. I'm Claire Fowler, the Senior Associate Dean of the College at Princeton, and um, I'm really happy to welcome you all tonight to the assembly for the class of 2014. Even the noisy people behind me, I can hear them too. Um, see, we mean business. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what happens if you arrive late to lecture, you have to sit next to the instructor. Um, the, the assembly tonight actually is structured the same way as many of your classes will be at Princeton, which is you'll have a lecture, and then that will be followed by the student discussion groups known as precepts at Princeton, because we don't want you just to take it all in. We want you to actually think about it and discuss it with your classmates. So tonight, after the lecture, you'll go back to your residential colleges and discuss some of the ideas that you've heard here with your classmates. It's my great pleasure to introduce to you tonight's speaker, Professor Sam Wong, who's the Associate Professor of Neurosciences and Molecular Biology at Princeton. Professor Wong graduated with honors in physics from California Institute of Technology and holds a doctorate in neuroscience from Stanford University School of Medicine. He came to Princeton 10 years ago after holding research posts at Duke University Medical Center and at Bell, Lucent, Bell Labs Lucent Technologies. Professor Wong teaches both graduate and undergraduate courses at Princeton and the last year for the first time and in the spring for the second time will be teaching a relatively new course called um, Neuroscience in Everyday Life, Molecular Biology 101, Neuroscience 101, and it fulfills the science and technology requirement for those of you who aren't going to make a career of the life sciences. Um, he's also a fellow at Forbes College and has served as an academic advisor there. <laughs> the other colleges are very nice too. Uh, Professor Wong is the recipient of many academic honors and fellowships and um, his groundbreaking work in the field of neuroscience is documented by more than 50 publications in leading scientific journals. He's also the author of popular science articles and is a co-author of a book, which I really need to read, called Welcome to Your Brain, or Why You Lose Your Car Keys But Never Forget How to Drive, and Other Puzzles of Everyday Life, which was translated into many languages and named the Young Adult Science Book of the Year in 2008 by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. While Professor Wong defines his primary research interest as figuring out how the brain works, and that's what he's going to talk to us about tonight, um, he actually has some interesting sidelines also. He's developed a new method for understanding presidential election polls um, using statistical meta-analysis, and this work was featured um, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So he's not only a distinguished scientist, but actually a true public intellectual who enjoys communicating his ideas to a popular audience. Um, he regularly gives uh, talks um, on the scientific lecture circle, but also in public avenues. And he has made numerous television and radio appearances um, in arenas as diverse as uh, Fox News, CNN, and public radio. Um, tonight, we're lucky enough to be his audience. Uh, you all completed his survey, I think, about how your brains work. And so I hope tonight he will tell us a little bit about how, in fact, it does work. Please join me in welcoming Professor Sam Wong, who will address the class of 2014 on the subject of neuroscience and everyday life.
Okay, well, thank you very much, Dean Fowler, for that very kind introduction. Uh, it is a pleasure and an honor to speak to pretty much the entire incoming class of 2014. I will let you know that this is the largest group of people I've spoken to in person, so this is exciting for me. And it's the first time I've had an audience behind me, <laughs> so uh, let me know if anything important happens back here, okay? Okay, so um, again, thanks for that lovely introduction. Um, as Dean Fowler says, I'm a neuroscientist. I'm also appointed to the Department of Molecular Biology, and it's a pleasure and an honor to speak here tonight. Uh, I guess this is your first intellectual, first academic experience here at this university, so I hope that I do a good job, and I will try my best to answer as many questions as possible afterwards. Now, as stated, uh, I'm a neuroscientist, and I came into neuroscience for um, idealistic reasons. I really wanted to understand um, Little girl, I wanted to understand. <laughs> I wanted to understand uh, the brain. Uh, my original background was in, was in physical sciences, uh, and I subsequently decided that I wanted to understand how my own brain worked. I thought that physics was uh, an exciting field. I'm sorry. <laughs> if it's somebody else's kid, it doesn't matter. But when it's your own kid, you just <laughs> okay. Okay. See, see you in a minute, little girl. Okay. Good. That's good. She'll be back. She'll be back. Okay, so uh, I came into science for idealistic reasons. I wanted to understand uh, a deep question within my lifetime. But one thing I found out was that physics was very mature, and so I discovered that the discoveries were coming at longer and longer intervals. And just for purely selfish reasons, I wanted to maximize the odds of finding out something with my own efforts in my own lifetime. And so for that reason, I ended up becoming a neuroscientist, and those are, that's my own reason. Uh, and I found it to be a very rewarding field. And so what I want to do tonight is share with you some of that excitement and to persuade you that neuroscience has some bearing upon your everyday lives. And I'm going to use uh, the survey that you took and I'm going to use some other pieces of information to try to persuade you of that point. And so I'm basically going to try to uh, shed some light on uh, this structure, which uh, doesn't really look very much like this. But anyway, but this is a cartoon. Uh, indicating the kinds of things that one can see, uh, the kinds of uh, things one can see by shining a spotlight within the brain. Now, as I said, I uh, sent you the survey, and it was very good of you to fill this out. This is the starting point for tonight's discussion, and I'm going to be referring to the findings in it. Uh, when you took it, you may have noticed that it was kind of a long survey, and I will not get to talk about everything in it, but I will be able to talk about some highlights in it, and I'll be glad during question time to uh, answer questions about it. And uh, as you know, because uh, very many of you took it, this is a survey that surveyed your attitudes about science in general and neuroscience in particular. Uh, it, in the survey, I carried out some simple tests of your brain functions, uh, and I also asked you some brain and other science trivia. And I'm very pleased that nearly 90% of you answered this survey. It was very good of you. Uh, I should say that in the last few days, there, were a little, there was a little trickle of additional answers, and I'm still figuring out which ones are actually Princeton students, because uh, uh, as it became more public, it actually went around a little bit. Uh, but anyway, thank you very much for answering this survey, and I will show you uh, answers uh, from it. So let me start by giving you some basic information about brains, just to give you uh, a little bit of orientation towards, uh, as to this three-pound mass that we all carry around inside our heads. I want to start uh, with something that we all have heard about our brains, that we all think that we know about how our brains work, and I want to trace back this belief. And it, it's a belief that dates back to this man. 
So this is a man named William James, and his uh, brother was uh, the novelist Henry James. But uh, William James was a foundational figure both in neuroscience and also in psychology. And in fact, he is regarded as uh, central to both fields. And he used to go around giving public lectures in his lifetime. And late in his life, he used to talk to people about what their potential was, what they could accomplish in life. And he used to go around saying that we're making use of only a small part of our possible mental and physical resources. And he said that over 100 years ago. Now, that was certainly true, and he was an inspiration to people when he said that. Um, but this got changed over time, and it got changed to something that I think that many of you, uh, in fact, have heard, which is this. You only use 10% of your brain. And this, was, this mutation occurred as a result of this fellow here, Dale Carnegie, who is not a scientist. Uh, he actually founded, basically, the self-help movement, and he more or less invented the, the idea of the self-help book. Uh, and, you, and he won uh, book sales and influenced readers by telling them that you only use 10% of your brain. And he claimed that William James said this. Now, that turns out um, not to be true. Um, it turns out that you need your entire brain. And I'm here to tell you a little bit about features and bugs about your own brains and, of course, my brain. Now, the brain, as I mentioned, is a three-pound object, uh, about three pounds. Uh, and that's out of a you know, typical 150-pound uh, body. And it's a remarkably efficient device. It's been shaped by millions of years of evolution, um, which, by the way, five, of, five out of six of you accept. Um, one, out, one out of six of you do not accept that. I was fascinated by this. I think it speaks very well of our broad admission policies. That, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that's the scientist in me talking. Um, so anyway, um, the brain has been shaped by uh, many generations of natural selection to become, be a very efficient device. Uh, it's efficient in many ways. It uses only about 15 watts of power, which is not very much power. It's out of your total energy budget. So if you think about your body as using energy in the same units as a light bulb or as a, another machine, physical device, the entire energy budget of your body is about, 50, uh, is about 70 watts. And so it uses, in proportional to weight, it uses a lot of that. The brain's an energy hog. But at some level, it's really remarkably efficient. And it uses about as much energy as the light bulb inside your refrigerator. Okay. And so in some sense, we're all dim bulbs, basically. Uh, and yet we're able to do a lot with that 15 watts. Now, you may recall that I asked you a question about this in the survey. And I just want to point out to you that uh, about one in four of you got this right. So I just want to run through this, uh, that a mo car moving down a freeway uses 1,000 times as much power as your brain. Uh, an idling car uses about half as much as that. So idling cars actually use a lot of energy. Uh, and 10 la laptops, 400 watts. And one idling laptop computer uses about as much power as a brain. So for instance, uh, this laptop here that I'm operating here is running full blast right now. Well, not full blast, but it's running uh, on two to three times as much power as, uh, as my brain is right now. And 23% of you got that correct, so I congratulate you on that. OK, so now I've introduced you the concept that the brain is the product of natural selection. And I want to start with that concept and start with another idea that we think about when we think about how our brains work. When we, um, when we think about our brains, when we read about our brains in pop culture or watch a TV program and people talk about it, often there's a metaphor that comes up, which is that the brain is like a computer, right? It's like a computing device, and it does things that computers do. But it turns out that brains, in fact, are in certain very deep ways not like computers at all. They, in fact, uh, are not perfectly accurate. They're not uh, perfect computing devices. 
they're more survival devices to help us survive and thrive and get around in life. And what that means is that our brains take shortcuts. And in short, what this means is that in some sense, our brains are constantly lying to us. And so our brains are trying to help us survive, help us make it to the next day, survive, live, reproduce. Um, but what our brains are not doing is doing some kind of complicated calculation. And so I want to show you this using your own brains. I'm going to show you this by demonstrating a few effects that we can uh, demonstrate here in this room. And so I'm going to show you some of those things. Now, in the first one, I'm going to be aided in this by my uh, colleague, Professor Cornell West. And I think many of you may recognize Professor West. Uh, Professor West is not a scientist. He's a humanist, of course. And he's one of our best-known faculty. Um, he is the class of 1943 university professor in the Center for African American Studies, and he also teaches in the Department of Religion. And if you're ever lucky enough to take a classroom, he is an excellent teacher. Uh, he teaches in areas of uh, political thought, 21st century philosophy. Uh, he can talk about anything from race relations uh, in modern America to uh, Homer's Odyssey and Iliad. So uh, he's quite a deep thinker in many ways and a really compelling teacher. But what I got him to do for this is demonstrate an effect that comes from originally psychology. And I'm going to use this effect to demonstrate to you a way in which your brain can lie to you. And I'm going to show you this effect. And before we get started on it, I'm going to um, get it going here. And before I show you this effect, I want to give you a little bit of instruction about what to do. So I'm going to show you a video. And I should say right now that this is not a magic trick. This is an actual demonstration of something strange that your own brain does. And what we're going to watch is this. I want you to watch this. There's going to be a little introduction. And then at the end of the introduction, he's going to be saying something. What I would like you to do is please listen to what he's saying. I think uh, maybe at the beginning, start by closing your eyes and think about what you think he's saying. And then I'll say, OK, open your eyes now. And I'll let, and you know, go ahead and open and close your eyes just to demonstrate that it's not some kind of parlor trick. Uh, and afterwards, I'm going to ask you what you heard. And, uh, and there are several options, and we'll just see what you heard. OK, so let's, uh, let's go to uh, Brother Professor Cornell West. It's an effect called the McGurk effect. I'd like to welcome the class of 2014. How blessed we are to have you here. I know each one of you brilliant, courageous, and visionary, and I'm blessed to be here with my distinguished colleague and my dear brother, Professor Sam Wall. Okay, now close your eyes. Baba, 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 Baba. It's deep thoughts, I know. Baba, Baba. And then open your eyes and look Baba. at him and think about what he's saying. Baba, Baba. Okay, and if it ba -ba. sounds different um, and you think it's a trick, ba -ba. open and close your eyes as much as you like. Baba, 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 Baba. Okay, so I think by now. Baba, Baba. 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 Okay. Baba. All right. So it's worked. So ba -ba. I think by now it's probably worked for many of you. Baba. 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 It's almost over. Baba. Okay. Baba. Okay. So let's go ahead and take ba -ba. that down. Thank you, Professor West. Baba. Now, I, I should say that it was really very good of him to do this. Now, okay. So. This is what I want you to tell me. Okay, so I want, just tell me, when you were, um, when you had your eyes closed, 
What do you think you heard him say? Okay, and then when you had your eyes open and you were looking at him, what did you think he said? Right, okay. So, so the audio is of Professor West saying Baba. And the, um, and the video is of him, in fact, saying Dada. And for most people, what happens when you look at the video of Dada and you hear Baba, most people hear something else. They hear a Gaga or Dada. Uh, my three-year-old, who uh, is in the back of the room now, uh, the first time she said it, she saw it, she thought he was saying Vava. Okay, so this works really from a very early age. And here's how it works. It, it, was, a, it was Baba. It was, it was a video of Professor West saying Dada, dubbed with Baba all the way through. Okay, so it was Baba all the way through. There was no trickery. That's exactly what it was. So it's nice having people on stage because I can hear the questions. And, um, okay, so here's how it works. Uh, the way it works is that when you think you're listening to people talking, you're actually using other cues as well. And unbeknownst to you, you are using visual cues. So for instance, if I'm talking to someone in a crowded room and I'm having difficulty hearing that person, I will use visual cues to try to infer what that person is saying. And I don't even know that I'm doing it. My, my brain is doing this seamlessly without me being aware of it. And we all do this. And I think uh, for those of you who it didn't work for, um, that's okay. It actually, there's some fraction of people it doesn't work for. So you should not be concerned if it didn't work for you. <laughs> It's really okay. Okay, so, um, so that is one way in which your brain does something without you being aware of it at all. And that's, again, called the McGurk effect. Now, that's an example of something that your brain does in everyday life, and, and most people experience that. Now, here's another kind of uh, brain trick that I tested you for. Um, this is something called synesthesia, and this is something that works for much, a much smaller fraction of the population. And what I was looking for when I asked you questions like this, and I think most of you remember this graphic that was part of the survey right here uh, that says the cat. And what I asked you was things like, okay, here's the letter H and here's the letter A. Do those two letters look different in color to you? And it, what I was looking for was something called colored grapheme synesthesia. A grapheme is a letter or a digit. And it turns out that for some small fraction of the population, letters and digits are automatically seen in color. There is no pause in the process, people just see colors everywhere they see letters and digits. And that was what I was looking for. And it turns out that this is a capacity that arises early in life. Um, it can't be learned. It cannot be practiced. And so no matter how much you try, uh, there's this instant thing that happens when you uh, experience color graphene synesthesia. And if you have it, it's immediate. And, it, and, um, and so I tested you in several ways. And this is basically some kind of crosstalk between color and grapheme perception. And the tests I gave you were uh, looking at the number five, and if you looked at it from a distance, you see a five. If you look at it up close, it's the number three. And maybe you see those as being different. Or maybe the letters H and A in this uh, thing here. In this case, uh, what color grapheme synesthetes see when they um, look at this is that they see this immediate triangle pop out. The twos come out against the background of fives. Now, 15 of you said you saw a pattern and reported it correctly as being a triangle. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a synesthete because you could also, for instance, be very fast at seeing patterns in, against a background. But three of you saw all three effects. And I am reasonably confident that those of you who saw an effect in all three of these questions are color grapheme synesthetes. Now, that is approximately consistent with what happens in the general population. People have been studying this, and what they found is that about one in 200 people have color grapheme synesthesia. And it's just one example of synesthesia. Now, it's not known how this works, but my colleague and friend uh, V.S. Ramachandran, who uh, is on the faculty at UC San Diego, is of the opinion that it could be because of the fact that colors 
and shapes such as digits and, uh, and letters are represented in nearby parts of the brain. And what he suggested is that these are nearby parts of the brain, they're heavily interconnected, and it could be that exceptionally heavy interconnections between these two brain regions could result in uh, one stimulus being automatically associated with the other one. So that's one possibility for how this works. Basically, some people have a lot of connectivity in that part of the brain. Now, 90 of you claim to be synesthetes, okay? <laughs> now, and, and many of those claim to be color grapheme synesthetes. Uh, now, I should say that I, I hate to break it to you, but okay, you may think you're synesthetes, but in fact, the effects didn't work for you. Now, I should say that synesthesia, as I said, is an automatic thing. It happens immediately without any conscious processing. It can be color and shape. It can be color and smell. Um, what it is not, I'll give you an example of one of your answers that you gave. It's not this. When I look at raw meat, <laughs> my mouth waters, and I want to eat and taste a big steak right then and there. Okay. So one of you answered this, and I am sorry to break it to you, you are not a synesthete, okay? Okay, so that, okay. Now, so not all associations are synesthesia. Um, now I should also say that of the three of you who saw all three effects, of those three of you who saw all three effects, two of you said that you were synesthetes, but one of you said no. So there is somebody in this auditorium who until relatively recently did not realize that he or she was a synesthete. And, uh, and I would be delighted to meet you at some point. Um, but uh, it's often the case that people don't learn about synesthesia until after they graduate from college. Uh, and so um, I, I've talked to synesthetes about this, and they, it's just fascinating to hear them talk about the letter A being red and the letter B being blue and so on. It's, it's really a remarkable phenomenon. Okay, so now to continue the topic of your brain lying to you, uh, I now want to give you something that, returning to something that most of you have, I want to return to uh, something that's a practical brain tip, and this relies on the way that you uh, use your brain every moment of your life, especially in crowded rooms, and this is something you can use in everyday life, and when I see you over the next few years walking around campus, if I see you doing this, I will know that you're a member of the class of 2014. Now, this is something I asked you about in the survey, and I asked you the question, okay, when you uh, are on your phone and you're in a crowded place, what do you do in order to try to get a better result? And just show me what you do. Okay, so most of you like go like this, right? Now you may have noticed that this does not work very well. Now 87% of you said that you did this. Um, it turns out that from your experience, I think you know that when you're in a crowded place, this doesn't work, okay? And so in fact, not helpful in getting better, brain, uh, getting better cell phone results in a crowded space. Now, the better thing to do is to, on your phone, find out where the uh, microphone is, on this phone it's here, and go like this, and when you're listening to someone else, cover it up. And when you do this, uh, there's a very high likelihood that you will get better performance out of your phone, right? Now, I'll explain to you how this works. Uh, the way this works is that phones have what engineers call full duplex. And what that means is that room noise and your voice get fed into the mouthpiece and then get fed through here to give you a more natural feeling. So for instance, intercoms and walkie-talkies lack this feature. So full du duplex is the thing that fo most phones have, both landlines and cell phones, in order to give you a more natural feeling. But it turns out that when you are in a crowded space, what happens is that room noise goes in the mouthpiece, and then when you're trying to listen to your friend, what you end up getting is room noise and your friend's voice in the earpiece. And this is, of course, a very hard thing for your brain to solve. But what you can do is you can take advantage of something your brain circuitry does effortlessly, without any effort whatsoever, you just do it automatically, which is something uh, that neuroscientists sometimes call the cocktail party effect. 
And this is an effect in which you naturally are able to pick out one source of one friend in front of you and filter out other people who are at other positions and with different uh, tones of voice and uh, timbre of voice and so on. And so when you do this, you put your finger over the mouthpiece and then your friend's voice is in that ear and then the room noise is in the other ear. And this is something you solve without any effort whatsoever. So even though your friend's voice is not any louder, you can get better performance out of a telephone. And this has been known to engineers for quite some time, but the neuroscience of it is still being worked out. 6% of you said this. Okay, now I should say that, uh, of course, uh, 87 plus 6 is less than 100. So 7% of you gave two other answers. And the answers you gave were um, talk more loudly and uh, cover your other ear when you talk. And th this is a question about listening on a cell phone. And so I conclude that 7% uh, of you are not very good listeners. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, give this a try sometime. Okay, so now um, I want to turn away from uh, your brain lying to you, and I want to talk to you about uh, neurological disorders. It turns out that uh, I asked you about neurological disorders, psychiatric disorders in your own families. 63% of you said that you had some kind of issue, whether it be Alzheimer's disease, stroke, memory loss, autism, uh, uh, what, whatever it might be, uh, somewhere in your immediate family, including grandparents. So almost two-thirds of you have something like that. But there was something interesting that I found out, and it was about autism spectrum disorder. Now, autism spectrum disorder has been in the news a lot lately, and it's primarily um, a genetically inherited disorder. It's caused by multiple genes, uh, and, and evidence for that is, in, for instance, is the fact that between identical twins, if one identical twin has autism spectrum disorder, the likelihood of the other one being autistic is 50 to 90%. And so it's really predominantly polygenic. But that turns out to possibly have real-life implications. And this came up in a question that I asked in this survey. And I asked, OK, uh, in addition to that inventory that I just mentioned, I asked, OK, do you have a sibling with autism spectrum disorder? Now, what I found out was kind of interesting, which is that 32 of you reported having one. Now, there's thir about 1,300 of you in this class. Uh, as I said, 87% of you answered the survey. So 32 may not sound like all that many. But it turns out that when you do the arithmetic, that's one out of 35. And that is a lot, because the reported incidence of autism spectrum disorder in the general population in the United States is only one in 170. And so there's something going on here. So the reported incidence of having an autistic spectrum sibling in this class is about four times higher than the general population. And unless you come from families with five children on average each, there is something going on here. So what could that thing possibly be? All right, so I broke down the data a little bit more. Now, the survey was anonymous, but I did have your answers collated so that I knew what your possible intended major was, and I knew other things that I had asked you about. So even though I didn't know your name and I didn't know who you were, I knew other demographic information about you, including your intended major, the major that you think that you might pursue over the next four years. So, incidence of autism spectrum disorder. So I said that the reported incidence is about 1 in 170. Now, that certainly could be underdiagnosed because, for instance, uh, people might ha not have good uh, health care. Uh, awareness of autism has been going up a lot over the last 10 or 20 years. And so one could possibly say that the incidence of autism in the general population might be as high as 1 in 100. And that's about what it is here in New Jersey. So I broke you guys down by uh, intended major. And what I found was that siblings of Princeton intended humanities and social science majors was about 1 in 82. Okay, so that's not so far from this estimate of 1 in 100. But what I, else I found was that among possible science, math, and engineering majors, <laughs> the likelihood of having an autistic sibling 
is 1 in 25, and that's quite high. Now, this is interesting. Now, let's see. What, uh, what could possibly account for this? Well, I said that autism is polygenic. In most kids, it is caused by more than one gene, so it's kind of like the inverse of the lottery, right? You draw a bunch of numbers, and when you get a certain combination, then something happens. Um, and so in that respect, it's polygenic. But if you are the sibling of someone with autism spectrum disorder, then on average, you share half of your genetic content with that sibling. And it could be that the genes that are responsible for autism early in development might also be useful for other things. They might be useful, for instance, for um, forming systematic views of the world, for really sticking with something, for, I don't know, maybe sticking with something a little bit too much. Because if you look at autistic people, they have repetitive interests, they have very fixed interests. And so it might be that in smaller doses, these genes might in fact carry some kind of advantage. And those of you who have an interest in science might in fact share that um, through your genetic content with your siblings. Now, even though the survey is uh, anonymous, I don't know who you are, but I can tell you that I was very interested in this because, in fact, I was a science major in college. I was a physics major when I was an undergraduate, and, in fact, my sister is autistic. And so I was very interested in finding this out because it made me think about my own background. So I, I was very interested in this finding. All right, so now let's get into brain mechanisms, how this occurs. I told you that this is determined early on, so it's basically determined at fertilization when your genetic content is determined, but it's possible to look in the brains of people uh, post-mortem and find out what might be different in their brains from typical kids. And there are several brain regions that are affected. This is an area of very, very much of current research. It's not really understood what's going on here, but if you look in the brains of autistic people, at a cellular level, the most frequent places where you can find things that are different from typical people, typical uh, adults, are in the cerebellum and the amygdala. And a few of you understand the significance of this, but just to, to tell uh, the 90% of you who don't know, the amygdala is a brain structure that's important for social uh, interactions, for detecting social balance. So for instance, when you feel intense fear or intense happiness, your amygdala is activated. But when you also see those things in another person, you also have your amygdala activated. And so there's a common principle in brain function that brain structures that are involved in you feeling an emotion are also involved in you perceiving that emotion in other people. And so perhaps it makes sense that people with a social interaction disorder like autism spectrum might have differences in their amygdala. Another region that's affected is the cerebellum. And this is a little bit harder to explain because when you look in textbooks, the cerebellum seems to be involved in movement, involved in sensation, perhaps integrating sensations to generate movement. It doesn't seem to be a very social kind of place. It's not a brain structure that is known to regulate social um, functions. But current research suggests that the cerebellum might be involved in, uh, in other things as well. And what's interesting here is that autism, of course, is uh, so well known that you can even take a Facebook quiz to see if you uh, possibly qualify as being on the autism spectrum. Um, and, you can, uh, and this is developed by a leading autism researcher, Simon Baron-Cohen, uh, who, by the way, is uh, related to the other Baron-Cohen. Um, very nice. Um, so, so if you look at this inventory, you can see questions that are commonly associated with autism spectrum. Um, and they seem to have some kind of sensory or perceptual component. For instance, if I try to imagine something, I find it very easy to create a picture in my mind. People on the spectrum for autism have difficulty with that. Another one is, I often notice small sounds when others do not. And so these are examples of things that are commonly found in people on the autism spectrum. If you read essays by autistic people who are functional enough to write about it, for instance, the veterinarian Temple Grandin, they write things like, they can't stand the feeling of clothing. They're really sensitive to the touch of fabric. 
And this is really odd, because if, if you only had sensitivity to touch or to sounds, you would just be some weird person. You would just, you know, you could make it through life and just wear odd clothes and wear all silk or what have you, and you'd be okay. Uh, but it's curious that these things are linked to one another. And what I would like to present to you is the possibility, which is an area of current research, which is that perhaps autism, the social aspects of autism may share some root cause early in development that's shared with uh, other kinds of cerebellar processing, namely uh, other kinds of perceptual processing. And so one possibility that researchers are very interested in right now is the possibility that autism is triggered by abnormal perceptual processing in early life. It's sort of like, imagine uh, if you could never tell whether somebody was happy or sad. If you meet autistic people, what they, uh, what they often do is, um, when you talk to them, they, instead of looking at your eyes, which most of us do, they look at the mouth. Another example of an autistic, uh, typical autistic behavior is if you ask an autistic person, uh, pretend like you're erasing a chalkboard. Um, most of us would find some flat surface, imagine a flat surface and go like this. But what an autistic person has to do is they, have to go, they, they look around and they look for a flat surface and they start going like that. Right? So they, there's something going on in the way that they interact with space. They find the need to do that kind of thing. If you ask them to open a lock, um, pretend like they're opening a lock instead of going like this, which most of us would do. They have to find some container, right? They have to find some container and then they have to like go into the container and go like that. So there's something going on in the brains of autistic persons. Now, um, to give a 30-second mention to my own research, in my laboratory we study the cerebellum and we are very interested in how brains and how neurons integrate information. This is an example of one of the 100 billion neurons in a brain. And this actually, this particular neuron is one that I filled with fluorescent dye and so you can see that it's got this large, elaborate structure, this Baroque structure that's its dendritic arbor. And you can see that what it's probably doing is it's taking all the information that's coming in on this arbor, this dendritic tree, and it's integrating it here at the cell body. And it turns out that all of the input of this particular neuron in the cerebellum is sent out on this little structure, and it's called an axon. And so even at the single cell level, neurons are in the business of integrating information and doing something with it and sending it out. And so this is an example of something that we study in my laboratory. We study this kind of thing both at the level of single neurons and also at the level of whole brains. Okay, so now I want to get away from autism a little bit. I want to talk, uh, get back to, uh, but enough about my research, let's get back to you. Um, I want to talk to you about an experience that you have recently had that some of you perhaps are still having, and that's the experience of adolescence. Now, adolescence is not all about sex, and it's not all about hormones. What's interesting about adolescence is that even though we think of it as a time of storm and stress, it's also a time when there's a lot of intense brain change happening. It turns out that brains are growing and growing, uh, new synapses are forming, you reach a peak number of synapses at, by the age of 10, and then starting around the beginning of puberty, uh, you start losing synapses as it turns out, and you lose about a third of the synapses you have at the age of 10, and then you reach some kind of adult level of, uh, of synaptic number. Um, and this is also a time when there are a lot of things happening. If you recall, you recall that there are a lot of things going on in your head, and I just want to give you some examples of things that uh, you may have noticed. Um, if you look at your friends or in yourselves, if you're introspective, um, things like maybe um, that you may still have issues with, uh, uh, impulse control, maybe trouble planning ahead. These are things that you can possibly see in your friends, right? Difficulty planning ahead, difficulty uh, exerting self-control, maybe when you're trying to make a positive impression on other people. One thing that's interesting about this is that it's a period of intense change, but that change is continuing now. Most of you are around 18 years old, and your brain is still not done developing. It turns out that your brain is going to continue to develop in the next four years, in addition to being a time when you're discovering a lot of things about yourself and about people around you, about your interests, you're also 
your brain is also undergoing intense physical change. And I just want to give you a sense of that. Here's now um, work done at UCLA. Um, this is now a mapping of many kids age 6 through 20, and it's a map of changes in the brain and development. And what we're looking at here is changes in the, the gray matter. The gray matter is where the synapses are in the brain. Um, as I said, it peaks around age 10, and then it diminishes a little bit. And what we're looking at here is a composite movie of uh, brains between the ages of 6 and 20. And this is the back of the brain. This is the front of the brain. And blue indicates final mature volume. Okay, so let's just watch this. It's going to be on a loop. And if you look here, what you see is that the brain develops from back to front. So a central principle of development in the brain is that development tends to happen from the back and move towards the front. And as you see this cycle, it just cycled. You can see here that the back end, so the back end matures, and then you can see this wave of maturation goes towards the front. And you can see by the age of 20 or so, then the front of the brain has reached its more or less final volume. Now the reason this is relevant is in fact that those capacities I talked about, self-control, uh, directing your attention, making a good impression on other people, all of these are phenomena that psychologists and neuroscientists refer to as executive function, right? So uh, executive function is something that relies on the prefrontal cortex. And you can see here that in fact your prefrontal cortex isn't done yet. Now I should say that your prefrontal cortex is still not going to be done for a few more years, and your white matter, which is, uh, which is where the long distance connections in your brain are, is still going to keep on developing. In fact, you're not going to be done with that until your 20s or maybe even your 30s. So your brain is still a work in progress, and that's in addition to all the other things you're going to be discovering over the next few years. All right. Now, um, if you're interested in these things that I've just told you about, I hope I've persuaded you that, in fact, neuroscience is of some uh, relevance to your everyday lives. Uh, there's this new course that Dean Fowler mentioned, Neuro 101, Neuroscience in Everyday Life. It meets the ST requirement. As you select courses over the next few days, you will learn what these two letters mean. Um, and it's offered in the spring, and we taught it for the first time last year. These are two freshmen who took it last year, and they and you do things in the, we do things in the lab like um, record impulses from single neurons. So for instance, we have this apparatus for recording nerve impulses. You can, we start with something like an earthworm, where you take the electrodes and you put it on the earthworm, and you can record single electrical impulses from the earthworm. Then you can take the same apparatus, and in another laboratory, uh, you can also apply the electrodes to your own head um, after cleaning the apparatus. And, um, <laughs> and then you can apply it to your own head and, in fact, record electrical activity in your own brain. We also use um, uh, other kinds of advanced methods, such as functional MRI. And we do things like we image language processing in the brains of, say, right-handers and left-handers. And one of the results that we, uh, we showed people in last year's course was you can see here that right-handers tend to process language. This is language processing task on one side of the brain. And left-handers have a tendency to process language on both sides of the brain. And so this is an example of something that we, uh, we do in the laboratory. Um, I should say that if you get into the class and you are left-handed, uh, left-handers are only 1 in 10 in the population. And so if you're left-handed, there's a really good chance that we're going to put you in the scanner. So think about that. Okay, so, um, so I would love to open this up for questions. I just want to uh, use this slide to remember to thank all the people who helped me in preparing this. Uh, the silly cartoons came from uh, an excellent illustrator who worked on my book, a woman named Lisa Haney. Of course, I want to thank brother Professor Cornell West, also the instructors of Neuro 101, Alan Gelbrin, Sean Barron, and Alex Cloth, uh, the broadcast center who made the video of Professor West, and the survey was carried out by Ed Freeland and Naila Roman. And of course, the research in my own laboratory, and there are many people in my lab, so I won't name them all, but if you want to read about my research, you can go to synapse.princeton.edu. And I would be glad to take your questions now.
All right. Okay. So if you have questions, uh, there's a runner here with a microphone, and it's better to wait for the microphone to come to you. That would be the, the ideal case. And so I think, yeah. Well, uh, Professor Wang, first I'd like to uh, thank you for coming to speak to us today. It's uh, quite a privilege, and I think everybody probably, at least I did, really enjoyed your speech. But uh, what I was... Thanks. Thank you. Your survey that I found. I'll, yeah. If there's a problem, I'll repeat the question, so just keep on going. Yeah, I thought one of the questions that was most interesting on your survey was when you asked um, about whether we felt that science was the best explanation of the world. And uh, as somebody who uh, definitely answered that, I completely believe in evolution. I'm kind of a professed uh, agnostic atheist. I as well answered that I thought science was pretty much the best explanation of the world. I was curious what your thoughts would be on the results of that question, as well as uh, people who perhaps did not answer so far to the science I was, side of I was the spectrum. Very, that's, that's a great question. I was very interested in that, and unfortunately I didn't get, have time to talk about those results. So the questions were questions like, do you think that science is of relevance to your everyday life? And the reason I didn't show that is that uh, over 90% of both technical and non-technical majors said probably, you know, definitely or probably to that. And so I didn't show it for that reason. And so I was very pleased to find out that nearly all of you thought that science was of relevance to your lives. Uh, the other things I didn't get to talk about were um, that uh, five out of six of you accepted that um, evolution was the best explanation for the appearance of human life on Earth. Um, let's see, what else was there? Global warming. Uh, about 40% of you, let's see, how did this go? 40% of you were sure that global warming is happening. Another 40% thought the evidence was mixed which I thought was very interesting, because from a scientific standpoint, the evidence is not mixed. And I was very interested in this because, you know, obviously you're smart people, but 40% of you think that the evidence is mixed on that question. And so I think that's really interesting, because I think that even very smart people can get their information about science from public media. And that's something that's very hard, because of course, look, if you're not taking a course in climate, then that's where you're going to get your information. And I think it's really hard to make sense out of the world. So I think that one thing that's going to happen, I don't know if this is what your question is about, but I think that one thing that's going to happen as you take science and other courses here is you, I hope you're going to develop some critical thought and, you know, evaluate evidence and maybe not necessarily take, what I, take my word for what I just said about global warming and evaluate that evidence. I, I, is that the kind of thing that you were curious about? The best, uh, the ones who don't believe evolution is the best explanation. Uh, I'm assuming the year of the conviction that evolution is the best explanation. I would say that um, I would say that I would regard evolution and natural selection as being a fact, the way that I regard the periodic table as being a fact. So, for instance, um, I can't see atoms, but I would be crazy to not believe in them. And so, when one looks at things like genomic evidence. Um, relatedness among species and so on, the evidence is really quite strong. And no working biologist would ever take evolution as being anything other than just simply a fact. Okay, so now in, in common parlance, it's called a theory, uh, but it's basically a fact. Now, that having been said, if you're not a working scientist, you don't necessarily have access to that evidence. And so that's something that, you know, if you haven't taken, look, I've been doing biology for decades, okay? So, you know, I read these papers every day. And again, it's some, and that's why I say that to me, natural selection is as real as atoms. So that, that, that's, my, that's my point of view. All right, great. Thank you very much. We have one on stage. Oh, sure. Hi. Um, Hi. One of the pages of the survey had us try to recognize different celebrities without their hair. 
Can yes. you elaborate on that? Yes, yes. <laughs> Again, that's something, um, right. So what I was looking for there was I was looking for face recognition, and what I was really looking for was a, uh, an issue that comes up in about 2% of the population called prosopagnosia. Prosopagnosia is a disorder in which it's hard to recognize faces. So when you take away hair cues and clothing cues, it's really difficult to recognize people's faces. So for instance, in the case of Cornell West, he's always dressed fairly formally when you see him around campus. But if I just show you his face, it turns out that some small percentage of the population has difficulty with that. And I was looking for that. Um, there's an excellent article in the magazine The New Yorker by Oliver Sacks last week in which he talks about the fact that he himself is prosopagnosic. Uh, so I was looking for that, and so the reason I was asking, and, and a few of you said that Barack Obama was actually Bill Clinton, and that, <laughs> and that Beyonce was Lady Gaga, and so on. So, so there was a little bit of that. But the thing that mainly came out of it was that I found a very low incidence of it, um, which I think might be related to the fact that it's actually profoundly socially debilitating to, uh, to have prosopagnosia. And I formed the opinion that possibly it's a selection factor against getting into a college. Right, because you have to have social skills to, to interact with other people. So that was my reason for asking it. It turned out that there are very few prosopagnosics in this group. So that was, that was why I didn't talk about it. We have someone in the balcony. In the balcony, okay, yeah. Anyone back here? No one in the balcony, all right. We have one up here. Okay, yes, in the middle there. There it goes, okay, hi. Hi, Professor. Uh, <laughs> um, in the past couple months, I've seen a couple of seemingly sort of shocking headlines about the way that we interact with the internet is affecting our thought processes. Uh, is, is this a real phenomenon, or was it just media hype? Well, let's see. So um, I'm not familiar with these particular stories. Why don't you let him hold on to the mic for just a minute in case. Okay, so I'm not familiar with, familiar with this particular story, but um, generally speaking, your brain is intensely affected by uh, all the experiences you have around you. And there's no denying that the environment seems to have some influence um, on our brain functions. So I'll give you one example. is something called the Flynn effect. And the Flynn effect is a phenomenon in which IQ scores have gone up several points a decade in most industrialized countries. And that is way too fast for any kind of selection to be occurring because it's in less than a generation time. So there's no time for genetics to, to be altered. And so there's, it's certainly the case that there's something different in the world around us. Now, in the case of the internet, that's interesting because um, the internet and other kinds of entertainment and information source are um, operating on a much shorter time scale. And so it's likely that there's something going on as we interact with the internet. Um, one example is that it's been demonstrated that, for instance, action-oriented video games, this is not the internet, but just a computer thing, um, that action-oriented video games seem to make people quicker at switching tasks, right? So what we call multitasking is something that basically imposes delays in our brain as we switch from one thing to another. It turns out that those delays are shortened slightly by playing Quake and stuff like that. So that's, that, that would be an example of a way in which computer actions do seem to affect the brain. Okay. Uh, maybe, yeah, anywhere is fine, but I just, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Hi, Professor Wang. Hi. Uh, so I've heard that IQ uh, change uh, when you grow up and change. Uh, you can change and when uh, you grow up. So I'm wondering if this is true or not, and if you could like, influence on IQ when you increase or drop. Uh, right. Okay, I'll repeat the question. So the question is uh, whether IQ can change over a lifetime. Um, so what IQ tests attempt to measure is some kind of native problem-solving intelligence, what's called fluid intelligence, 
Um, and one thing that's been observed about IQ is that IQ scores are not terribly stable before around the age of um, six or something like that. So if you test kids at a very early age, they score at some particular level, but then there's a tendency for that to change. So remember I said that the brain undergoes tremendous change uh, and reach maximum synapse number by the age of 10. That is also a time when IQ scores are not stable. So eventually IQ scores begin to stabilize. Um, IQ tests are supposed to measure problem-solving capacities. Uh, it's difficult. It's obviously a challenge to, uh, to design them to test other things as well. Uh, but in principle, they measure some kind of innate problem-solving capacity. And in principle, IQ scores are relatively stable um, once people get to, say, your age. OK, so is that, does that answer your question? OK, all right. We have one behind you. Uh, sure. Yep. All right. Um, so I have a quick question. We were talking about the amygdala and how what we perceive uh, this, uh, I mean, the part of our brain that whatever we use regarding what we perceive and what we feel are one and the same. So does that mean that we all have some degree of empathy? And do people with less empathy, are those connections not as great? Okay, so let's see. So, uh, right, the amygdala and empathy. This is great. Um, empathy is an interesting subject because it appears to be composed of multiple capacities. So, um, so I said that the amygdala is a part of the brain that seems to light up in scans and is active when you see, when you feel fear and also when you see fear in another animal. Right. Um, there are different kinds of empathy. So there's one kind of empathy that we and other animals seem to have. So for instance, there's this classic study in which a rat can press a lever to lower another rat suspended in a harness. And if this rat sees the rat suspended in the harness and squealing, the rat will stand on the lever until the rat comes down and then stay next to the rat. Okay, so that's an example of something that, that non-human animals can do. Now, there are more complex levels of empathy. Uh, so to give an example of that kind of empathy in kids, uh, small children will often cry when they hear other children cry. Like if you're in a room full of babies and one starts crying, then the other babies will start crying. It's incredibly annoying. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but actually, around, at some age, around the age of three or so, kids, when they see other kids upset, will start comforting them. And so that's an, a second layer of some kind of cognitive processing that gets added onto that. And so emotion appears to be a combination of these things where we basically mirror the things that we see, this sort of contagious empathy. And then there's this social empathy that gets built on top of that. And that second thing gets built up through a lifetime of experience and through this great big cortex that we go around with, this part of our brain that's 3 fourths of our brain. And that seems to be heavily involved in learning this more complex kind of empathy. Is that helpful? Yeah. OK. We have someone standing by up in the balcony. Uh, yeah, OK. And you're going to manage that to somebody. All right, so let's see. Uh, so. I'm over here. Uh, <laughs> hey, Professor. Um, I was just wondering, uh, what effect does alcohol consumption have on the development of a brain? <laughs> So as an official representative of the university. I visited UVA, so I was just like curious. Yeah. Because yeah. that doesn't happen here. So let's see. So, um, OK, so there's two, two ways to answer this. And I'll, I'll just answer this seriously. I'll, I'll, I won't make any cheap alcohol jokes. Um, one way to answer this is that uh, how alcohol gets you drunk is not fully understood. Uh, there are molecules in the brain that seem to uh, be the place that alcohol binds to it. So it's not just that it kind of solubilizes your brain generally. It appears to be the case that ethanol molecules, alcohol, 
specifically interact with this one kind of neurotransmitter receptor that's involved in inhibition, that is involved in saying no and holding down activity. And so that appears, so blocking that or doing something that appears to be something that alcohol does. So that's the question of how alcohol gets you drunk. Um, alcohol is also one of the most addictive drugs. And so there are addiction pathways in the brain uh, that have the job of basically signaling reward, but they can actually get cranked up all the way. And ways that they can be cranked up include things like cocaine, methamphetamine, and alcohol. And so alcohol also triggers those pathways. So they basically trigger some reward circuit, crank it up all the way, and uh, in ways that desensitize you to other pleasures that make you want to crave that thing and go back and get that thing over and over again. So uh, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure I'm really answering your question. Can you help me? What oh, exactly? Um, well, no, that's a good answer, but um, just, I guess, to follow up. Um, so would over-drinking or, or getting severely drunk have the same effect as, for example, bumping your head against the wall, or, or would it oh, okay, kill right. brain cells? Okay, right. uh, so there's a common belief that alcohol kills brain cells. Okay, so that is a very common belief in your parties. You make jokes about that kind of thing. Uh, uh, you'll hear jokes like that. Um, <laughs> and, um, and it turns out that what the alcohol does to the brain is a little bit more complicated. So it turns out to probably lead to synapse shrinkage and neuron shrinkage, because if you look in the brains of heavy drinkers, you can see brain shrinkage. And so something is going on. It's probably not neuron loss, so it's probably not killing brain cells, because when people stop drinking, there is usually some recovery of brain volume. Okay, so, the, so alcohol does something to the brain in heavy drinkers. It shrinks the brain, but it probably does not kill brain cells. Um, so I, I, maybe that's what you're asking about. Is that responsive to your question? Okay. Uh, sure. Okay, and then maybe down here. Yeah. Uh, hello, Professor Wang. So I uh, just wanted to ask, you were talking about brain development and how it's kind of still going on at late adolescence into the 20s and maybe 30s. So uh, I wanted to ask, what are the implications of this for learning and, say, character development? Does it mean once your brain has more or less late 20s Maybe. Okay. Okay, so to, okay. To repeat the question, uh, the question is that what do changes in the brain imply for changes in your character, your ability to learn, and other brain capacities throughout life? Is that a good summary? Okay, so yeah. Um, so, about half of the variation in our intelligence and our, in our personality are inherited. So basically half of who you are in those respects is baked into the cake when, you, when your egg got fertilized, when the egg that became you got fertilized. Um, and that's true, but it's also true that there's a strong effect on environment. And one thing that, for instance, that's been found is that in terms of temperament and personality, there's a certain degree to which this is true, this uh, half of the variation being hereditary. Uh, it changes over life, and so with maturation and as you get older, that genetic influence gets stronger. And one implication of that is that you are going to get a little bit more like your parents when you get older. And this may be a good thing or a bad thing, but that is something that's been observed. Um, another thing that goes with this is that things like memory function and also other kinds of task solving uh, change to some extent over a lifetime. For instance, memory function peaks around the age of 30. And after the age of 30, you have a slow decline. And I'm older than 30. 
Um, there's a slow decline in memory function. But then other things uh, get stronger. So for instance, coping with negative emotions um, uh, gets better with, as one gets older. Also around this age is a time, around the age that you guys are right now, is a time when uh, certain kinds of things start showing up like uh, mood disorders, depression, also schizophrenia. And so in fact, it's really important to keep that in mind that since you're not done yet, this is a time when those th kinds of things can come up. And so just a piece of practical advice is that it is helpful to, for instance, rely on advising services and places like Makash Health Center because these things are things that happen to us right around this time of our lives. Uh, yes, okay, hi. Hi, so I just finished reading uh, Dana Levitin's book, This Is Your Brain on Music, and something I didn't quite understand and something you touched upon lightly when you spoke about autism was the cerebellum's connection with emotions and uh, social cues. Uh, so I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Right, so, yeah, so Dan Levitin's book, uh, This Is Your Brain on Music, that's a very good book. I really like that quite a lot. Um, so what I was getting at there was uh, something that's in fact a current hypothesis that people are, are now investigating. So it's known that the cerebellum is involved in processing sensation and generating smooth movement. So for instance, when people have damage to their cerebellum, they can no longer learn a smooth, they, can, they move ballistically, it's called, they move jerkily, they can't learn new dance steps, they can't learn smooth movements. And those things are hard for them. But there's some evidence that the cerebellum is also involved in social and cognitive functions. So for instance, uh, kids who are eight who have to have brain surgery um, in their cerebellum will often regress in language to the level of a three-year-old. So there seems to be some other thing happening in the cerebellum. And in regard to autism, what I was suggesting was uh, a hypothesis that is not proved, but one that I'm very interested in, which is that maybe one thing that the cerebellum is doing is providing cues to guide the, social, the development of the social brain. So for instance, one thing the cerebellum seems to do is provide your, the rest of your brain with information when something unexpected has happened. Like you know, you're walking, and suddenly you walk off a curb, and then you trip, and you have to recover somehow, or you slip on ice, and then you recover. So the cerebellum is known to be involved in that kind of thing. And what I was suggesting was the idea that the cerebellum might be in the business of providing all kinds of signals for surprise. So one example of surprise is you can't tickle yourself. Like I go like this and it doesn't tickle, but if, some, but if my daughter does it, then that tickles. Okay, so, so that's an example of, of the same stimulus having a different effect depending on whether it comes from myself or someone else. And it's believed that that involves the cerebellum, that the cerebellum is, is partly responsible for generating that signal of surprise. And what I was suggesting was that maybe that's, that's how the cerebellum may influence social function. What if you went through life never knowing if someone approved of you, never knowing if someone was smiling at you, never knowing if someone was angry with you? If you never knew that at all, maybe it would affect your social function. So that was what I was suggesting. There was one, I just, she's done, all right. Okay, in the balcony. Okay. Um, professor, towards the end of your presentation, you mentioned briefly about being left-handed or right-handed and the corresponding patterns that can be reflected in a person's brain. But say that someone was born left-handed and then was conditioned before the age of six to be right-handed. What would you expect of their brain pattern? Oh, that's an interesting question. So yeah, so people who are born left-handed. So um, left-handedness, um, this is an interesting question at several levels. So it used to be that left-handers were, um, were compelled to write with their right hands. And that, for instance, uh, one example is that it's said that, uh, that Ronald Reagan was said to be left-hand dominant. 
but forced when he was a kid to write with his right hand. So that would be an example who was left hand dominant naturally, but then forced to use the right hand. Um, the reason that we did that, that brain imaging study is that there's a report in the literature that about one in three left-handers uh, have different activations, um, different patterns of brain activation when they process language, either on the opposite side from most other people or on both sides of the brain. Um, and we were very interested in that because it seemed like it might, for instance, open up more real estate for the handling of language. I'll give you examples of people, uh, famous left-handers. Um, See, so I'll start with presidents. So Ronald Reagan is thought to be left-hand dominant. Uh, Barack Obama, uh, Bill Clinton, the first President Bush, not the most recent President Bush. Um, <laughs> it's possible in most of these cases that perhaps that bilateral language representation might be helpful in processing language because most of the presidents I named were in fact very good with language. Not all of them, but most of them. Uh, and so that would be an example of um, Most of them are, in fact, um, uh, very good with language. And so that's an example of what difference there might be. Now, left-handedness is not one thing. So it's believed that there are different developmental pathways that lead to being left-handed. One pathway might be uh, uh, random choice. Another pathway might be some kind of genetic predisposition. So left-handedness at some level is a fairly mysterious phenomenon. Yeah. I was wondering if there's a correlation between ADD and um, creativity. ADD and creativity. Yes. Well, that's interesting, huh? Um, let's see. That's a good question. So I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I will say that one possible reason for many of these neurological and psychiatric issues that come up in development uh, to exist. Uh, so the first thing I'll say is that in many cases it's believed that there's a strong hereditary component, which then leads to the question of well, why have these things in the population? Uh, and I'll make the analogy of um, with sickle cell anemia. If you carry one copy of the sickle cell gene, then you're better able to survive malaria in northern uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but if you carry both uh, two copies of the gene, then in fact you have real issues and it's, uh, it's a debilitating form of anemia. Um, so one possibility is that having fewer copies of these genes or some subset of these genes in, in smaller doses might be helpful. Uh, I don't know about ADHD. But one thing that's been observed is, for instance, um, relatives of schizophrenics are often found to be creative or unusual in their capacities. So that's something that's been found. I'm not sure about ADHD. That's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. Thank you for asking that. Uh, hello, Professor Wang. Uh, I have two questions, actually. The first one might seem a little funny, but uh, is there any neuroscientific explanation for yawning and the transmission of a yawn? Uh, and the second one, uh, you, you displayed uh, MacArthur syndrome in which Professor Cornell West was uh, saying something and it seems something else. So uh, from a neuroscientific point of view, how sure uh, can we be of our perception of reality? Okay. <laughs> All right. Those are excellent, excellent questions. All right. So, wow. All right, okay, so let me start with um, the first one. Okay, the first one is about yawning. Yawning is contagious. I'm gonna talk about yawning. When you yawn, your mouth opens, you take in oxygen. I'm watching you, I can see you yawn. I'm seeing you yawn, you think about yawning. Don't yawn, no, 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 don't yawn. So yawning is contagious. It's really amazing how contagious it is. And I'm watching you and you think about yawning and I'm starting to feel like yawning myself. Um, so it is not known 
why yawning is contagious. I'm sorry, to, it, but it, it is also known that it is not necessarily a sign of boredom. So it turns out that when you yawn, your airway dilates by at least a factor of three. So there's this massive dilation. So it's believed that yawning has the biological function of bringing more oxygen in. And it happens both when you're waking up and also when you're going to sleep. Um, what's likely to be going on there is some version of contagious empathy, where when you see someone else do that, then you yourself go through it. And I am not offended. I'm watching a lot of you yawn right now. Um, and it, it's OK. It's really OK. Um, so, but the mechanism of that is not known, but it's likely to be the same thing that I was describing with contagious empathy. Likewise, the centers in your brain that are responsible for that particular phenomenon probably have some of the same thing going on. Uh, the other thing you asked about was our perceptions of reality, which is really the other end of the kind of question that I get about the brain. Um, I think the way to think about brain function is that nothing you perceive is perceived directly. Every experience you have, everything that comes to you from the outside world is translated into these little electrical impulses called spikes. And these spikes come in through peripheral nerves, through different nerves that lead into your brain, and then come in. And so all of reality is transmitted to you through these little impulses called action potentials. And what that means is that in, so I'll give you an example. The brain has no touch endings, which is why brain surgery is performed on people who are awake, right? Because what you do is you cut in and there's no feeling there. And so you can say things like, well, what are you thinking about right now? What do you feel? And then the person says, oh, I feel my arm. And then the surgeon knows, well, there's something important here in this part of the brain, and I better not cut any further. And so, it's <laughs> so, so brain surgery is done on people who are awake because there are no touch receptors in the brain. So all of reality is transmitted through spikes. Nothing is real. Okay. So think about that. <laughs> yeah. Two, okay, so two more questions. We'll go to the balcony and then probably down here someplace. Okay, and I'll, hi. Hey, hey. Um, sorry, I'm actually gonna go back to something that we talked about a little bit earlier. It, it takes a while to get a microphone. But um, going back to the empathy thing, um, there's in my family someone who has a personality disorder of, um, you know what, I have a microphone and now I'm forgetting. Uh, 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 do, do you want me to talk for a little bit while you It's, it's named it? narcissism, I'm sorry. Um, but he has narcissistic personality disorder. And I was wondering, first of all, if that's a genetic issue. And secondly, in what way his brain is different and why it is that he has such trouble empathizing with others. Um, from a sort of scientific point of view? So this question and answer is, in fact, web archived. And so you can, in fact, communicate. We can communicate to your, your brother, is it? It's actually my father. Your father. Oh, I see. Yeah. All right, well, we'll see if he, if he watches it, yeah. Uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. Um, so I don't really have a good answer for this. I'll get back to an answer I gave before, and that's that personality is about half inherited. And what that means is that about half of the tendency towards many personality traits is baked into our genome at the time that, uh, that our genetic content is determined. So it's likely that some of that that you perceive in him is that. Um, I don't really know how to answer your question, except that uh, one thing I'll point out is that assessments of personality um, are often unreliable when carried out by other family members. Oh, I'm not. So, Diagnosing. No, no, no. So, for, so, 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 so I'll give you an example. So I'll give you an example. Um, there's a well-known uh, meme in the culture about birth order, about how if you're firstborn, secondborn, and so on, it determines various personality traits. It turns out most of that work comes from asking family members about other family members. 
and when the assessment is done by people who are not members of the family, um, the birth order effects go away. So that's basically an urban legend. Um, I, I'm sorry, I don't really have a good answer for you because I don't know much about this. I'm not sure how well studied it is, and so I'm afraid I can't answer you. Oh, but, fair enough. Right. Thank you. Thanks. And so I think this is probably the last question. I'll be down here in front at the end. Yeah. Hi. Um, there was a question in the survey about perfect pitch. Yes. Um, and I was just wondering what the responses were like for that question and whether there's any correlation between having perfect pitch and being musically inclined. Um, that's a great question. Um, I, have, I did not do the cross-tabulation on that particular question. Um, I don't remember asking people whether they played a musical instrument. I, play, I asked about a sport, but I didn't ask about a musical instrument. The thing I was looking for there was I was looking for some relationship between pitch perception and, um, and synesthesia, and I was also looking for just unusual brain capacities that people had. Um, one thing that is the case is that perfect pitch varies according to environmental experience. So for instance, people who come from cultures where the language that they learned is a Far Eastern language like Chinese or Japanese, um, many of those languages are tonally oriented where the, the particular intonation governs the meaning of the word. And perfect pitch is often found in people from those cultures. Um, it, the incidence of perfect pitch is higher from those places. Um, it, the reason I didn't talk about it was that it turned out not to be super notable, and so I didn't have much more to say about it. you have a lot to think about. Um, so don't forget to go back to your colleges and meet up with your group so you can continue to talk about this and maybe take the course in the spring. Thank you. Thank you.